Coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fourth Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. Welcome to The Ron Show. My entire conversation today is going to be maybe tough, maybe, in fact, definitely very frank. A conversation on reparations, black voter apathy with the Democratic Party, and President Joe Biden as he heads into his 2024 re-election campaign. And my guest is Alan Holmes. Alan and I have uh, conversated, sometimes even sparred a little bit, I guess you would say, on uh, the Twitter X platform. And I'm okay with that. I, I, I try and let folks know that I can disagree without being disagreeable. That's what I want to say. Alan is a senior advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis. And I would sit here and love to have a conversation with you and pick your mind about uh, Atlanta City Council antics and whatnot. But that's not what brought us here. You and I have, I think, a spirited, maybe healthy disagreement on how to approach a lingering issue that no one at the federal level and few states uh, at the state level have tackled. And that would be the conversation uh, surrounding reparations. Alan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate the time, man. Yes, I'm glad to come on, Ryan. Listen, I'm glad we met on Twitter. As you know, that we've had some back and forth, but this is a good conversation we're going to have. And I think uh, taking things from Twitter to just a podcast episode is good, too, because it allows a deeper conversation and just to answer some questions and to kind of mm-hmm. go back and forth on it. So I'm just happy to be on. Well, and you know how it works, uh, whether it be an email or a social media dialogue back and forth, people can read out of context, what's the word I'm looking for? Emotion or attitude. And I'm just not like that. That's just not, you know, I've learned over the years to try and be careful with my words so as uh, not to sound angry or dispirited or even condescending or dismissive. It's really not easy to do that. It's a craft, something I think that a lot of us don't work on. And I've tried to make it a point over the years to work on that. I'm great example. One of the more strident listeners of this show, someone who listens to every episode I put out, is a conservative radio host back in my hometown who he and I don't agree on much except cats are good pets. And yet we've over the years gotten better, I believe, at crafting our disagreement to where we can disagree without being disagreeable. Uh, we've called each other out on being condescending or angry and stuff like that. So um, my hope is over the time that you and I've gone back and forth that I've tried to convey that like we may not see eye to eye 1000% on a lot of issues, but I try to disagree without being disagreeable. Does that make sense? Absolutely. No, absolutely. Let's dive into the reparations conversation because uh, we, we saw some fresh polling come out that sees that Joe Biden is underwater with young voters. That kind of surprises me. He's actually ahead of Trump on older voters, but he is, and and this is a a continuing trend, he's underwater with Hispanic voters and he's losing favor with African-American voters. And that's something that you and I have discussed uh, at length uh, over the last couple of months. Your thoughts on uh, where President Joe Biden stands as he enters his re-election year with these blocks of voters? I would say that um, the signs, uh, Ron, um, of where things are with black voters I saw some of those signs during the um, race between Governor Kemp and Stacey Abrams, the second, uh, uh, the second election. Yeah, um, I happened to do a, you know, a survey of Black voters. Uh, you know, my friends here in the Atlanta area, who nine nine percent of them are Democrats. You know, folks may not vote every time, but most of my friends that I went to college with who live and work here, and other people, 
um, are Democrats who vote. And I did a black voter survey. So during that election, um, in July, um, so it was early on, um, just did some general questions about whether they felt that you know the party took you know took them for granted, you know uh, their support for reparations, um, kind of who they were going to support for governor. And what I found shockingly, though it was a small sample size of sixty six, and you know I'm not a poster. I found that um, seven or nineteen um, percent of the people I sent this survey to were undecided for Governor Ryan. And that's mm-hmm. when I knew beyond other data that I, you know, research and, and take a look at that there were problems. Mm-hmm. And, and so the narrative a lot of times is that the Democratic Party just has a specific problem with black men. And, you know, they, they bring up the statistics around black women and their support, which is noted and mm-hmm. should be, we should, you know, be proud of that level of support. But the problem is from this polling that came back, it led me to begin to believe, and I've already believed that black women and black men have problems with the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. That does not fit the narrative, but the data that came back, you know, in my opinion, paints this narrative. Plus I know individuals, both men and women who've had issues with the Democratic Party, because if you look at my, the data, 55% 55% of the people that filled out my survey were women. So all black women. This was a black voter survey mm-hmm. specifically. Mm-hmm. And so that points to issues with black men and women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my opinion, a majority of this problem centers around economic issues. 43% of the voters in the survey that I sent out said the economy was the most important issue. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that you and I can have a debate about what that means. Some might be focused on their income, not being employed, right? Some people may be focused on just not getting by in terms of the in building their wealth, kind of starting businesses, doing as much as they can, sure. getting robots, people dealing with discrimination. In my opinion, the problem is that it's the wealth gap that has never been closed. Yeah. But a lot of black people just we're we're not completely knowledgeable as to why we can't do certain things. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make an excuse for not doing anything, just sitting and waiting for reparations, because that's not happening. I'm talking about the feeling amongst many black people that they're getting moved out of neighborhoods, gentrification, being displaced, right. not being able to pay the rising property taxes. Right. The frustration is that there's money that's missing. Mm-hmm. And I believe because it hasn't improved and black people do continue to vote at pretty high clips, we're now just at the point in the country where people are frustrated and they've just had enough. Well, the truth is this wealth gap didn't start during President Biden's term. Right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> but, you know, so <laughs> but it, I think it's just it just happens to be where it's almost it was like a small fire that was just never put out. And the fire has just increased. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's not, now it went to the bedroom. Now it went to the bathroom. Yeah, now it yeah. went to the basement. Yeah. And so I think that Joe Biden just happens to be the president during a time where it is just now at that point. I could dive into you know the 66 folks you polled and how many of them were male and all. I'm not even going to do that because I've seen the data myself in other you know empirical polling. And yeah, there is, especially when it comes to the subset of black men. 
black women tend to be stronger in alliance with the Democratic Party and their candidates. Black men, we have seen a tapering off. But do you see, do you understand when there is concern and pushback uh, about the thought of sitting out or saying you're frustrated or done in an election cycle where we are, I mean, within a kitten's whisker from having a Donald Trump reelected. When we saw degradation of black uh, voting participation in the 2016 election, and that netted us Donald Trump, and that netted us three additional Supreme Court appointments that are going to continue to uh, you know, weigh more in a conservative's favor. We saw electoral gains at the Senate and congressional level in 2016 as well, because folks, and listen, I'm a Bernie guy. I wasn't excited about Hillary Clinton either. I just had to suck it up and vote for her because, my God, the, 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 the dumpster fire that was running against her was going to be, and we correctly predicted, a, a disaster for the country and, it turned out, for the world. So do you understand when there is some pushback, some hesitance to say, it's not that we don't understand what you're saying, and I know you're tired of hearing, listen, give us some time, but do you understand that pushback, the passion? Because it's, it's pretty scary to consider a second Donald Trump term when there are folks who want to hold out for that or for uh, Israel Hamas or, or, or for uh, student loan forgiveness, et cetera, and so on. Does that make sense? It, yes. But so I'll say this, Ron. I'll say that, you know, you know, I've been very uh, critical of President Biden. You see that Me too. Twitter. Yeah, me too. This is not meaning this does not mean that I support Donald Trump. And right. this does not mean that I don't believe that he is dangerous. You know, I couldn't believe what occurred at the Capitol with on January 6th. Right. You know, I have a podcast that, you know, we can discuss at some point and hopefully you listen called Hidden Lynchings, where the season one I covered 10 lynchings and race riots that occurred in Georgia. Mm. Without do that research, was able to research the insurrection mm. that happened in Asheville, North, mm-hmm. Car- That's right. North Carolina. That's right. Not Asheville, Wilmington. And so my view is that I believe we can we may be at a dangerous point what i would say is that this has happened so more often than americans even know mm-hmm. now, i don't think we should get used to anything so i think he is dangerous now what i would say is the danger is which is the tough part of this always did donald trump is a, like a president we've never seen in regards to he's so out there mm-hmm. that i understand the argument an opposing politician would make to say, listen, do you see what the, do you see what the contrast is? Do you see what's at stake? Yep. And maybe not go as far as they could go policy wise in terms of their strategy, mm-hmm. because they're saying, all right, well, look at him though. I know you're saying I'm not good, but look at this man. Mm-hmm. And I, and the issue is I completely understand that. And I think that's one of the reasons Biden was elected in the first place. That right. People knew that I am not chancing this again. But the problem is, I think you have to at least send signals to voters that you're fighting. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about fighting hard all the time on behalf of voters because it's strategy as well. Mm-hmm. When people are beat down, mm-hmm. when they're getting laid off, getting fired, they can't get the house yep. they're trying to get into. They, they, they have a business and they're making some money, but they need $100,000 now. Yeah. yeah. And they're just like trying to, they're like, they're paying their bills, but they, 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 they can't scale. You have to show some people, I am fighting for you specifically to atone for what has happened. 
whether or not you're actually able to get something done. Mm-hmm. If you're making the attempt to do so, that may be enough to get a voter off the couch mm-hmm. because they have to see some passion if they're feeling beat down. And so I think you might say we can't touch the issue, but I say if you send signals to voters by at least saying, okay, well, reparations came out of the Judiciary Committee. We're putting it up for a full House vote. Mm-hmm. As we do lots of pieces of legislation that we know are going to pass the House if Democrats control it and die in the Senate. But mm-hmm. it happens all the time because people have beliefs in, in certain um, policy views, right? And so they push it because they, they, they want it to happen. They're like, I'm sending a signal to you on the environment or on police brutality or on other issues. Yeah that we're going to push this, even though we don't have the votes. Mm-hmm. So that's what I want to see for reparations. And I believe that that is what will supercharge the turnout, if you will, and maybe turn tide with black voter turnout. Okay, I want to put a pin in that and come back because I have a political reality counter to offer to that mindset. We're with Alan Holmes, senior advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis and political and staunch reparations advocates on The Ron Show, the American One Radio app, AmericanOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show. My guest today, Alan Holmes, Senior Advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis, staunch reparations advocate and host of the podcast, Hidden Lynchings, now on Apple Podcasts. So, Alan, I know you want to see some sort of movement from Democrats on reparations, but the fact is... In the House, Democrats don't control the House, so nothing can even start there without that. Maybe Hakeem Jeffries would tee it up, you know, once Democrats do have control. But again, that requires turnout this November. Now, the question that I have at Ron is, would it be fair for, you know, a voter to expect that Hakeem Jeffries or a member of Congress running re-election for them to just say, okay, if you turn out within 90 days, within 120 days, we'll introduce legislation. Mm -hmm. If we retake the House, because remember when the H.R. 40 bill was originally introduced and came out of the Judiciary Committee, Democrats were still in power in the House. Mm-hmm. So my my frustration is before they lost power until recently, that when they were in power was when leg, when the reparations legislation moved. So they technically could have passed it out of the House after it was able to get a favorable vote out of the Judiciary Committee. Right. Of course, it would have died a quick death in the Senate. But that is what my huge frustration is. Yes, they can do nothing now. I'm talking about when they were in control in the House and as a way, again, a signal to send the voters so they can get back in. Sure. Or attempt to. So I want to provide some perspective on that, though, because that bill uh, was introduced January 4th, 2021. Let's remember what was happening in January 2021, two days before the insurrection, this House bill was introduced. So the insurrection occurred. We had a COVID pandemic still broiling. We had a vaccine rollout that was an utter disaster. Uh, We had preparation for an Afghanistan withdrawal that we now know was going to be a fluster cluck. And with literally trillions of dollars in aid going out to Americans to stay at home, shelter in place, to keep their economies, their personal economies afloat, would it not have sent sort of a, an odd message to American voters? Hey, not only are we going to blast out this, you know, this multi-billion dollar aid package to get some more uh, stimulus out, we also want to talk about another huge aid package by way of reparations. Do, do you see what I'm saying? It's all about, to me, it's all about timing and it's all about 
knowing when you have an opportunity. And it sucks, Alan. It sucks that we just never like when 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 the Obama presidency had its slim majority and was able to kind of needle through the Affordable Care Act. Man, it would have been much nicer to have had full on Medicare, uh, a Medicaid expansion, or something like. But we had to needle through what we could needle through when we could needle it through because that was the only window of opportunity we had. You are correct. It's, I kind of feel like that parent that, you know, the kid says, hey, are you going to be buy, buy me that PlayStation? I, I will when I can. And poor mom or poor, poor mom and dad, you know, the, 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 the light bill's got to get paid, the, the, the rent's due, or, the, you know, the car payment, the car needs fixing. We were talking off air about the car needs. You know, you just can't do it. And you, you, you constantly disappoint the kid that you said you were going to get that PlayStation. But the realities are things come up. But I digress. So, so my question to you is, what needs to happen for everyone to be on the same page as far as meeting goals in 2024 in November and having people in place in office to ensure that the conversation about reparations actually happens? I think you mentioned earlier, well, you, you want to hear candidates talking about it on the campaign trail, right? Yes, I'd like them to talk about it on the campaign trail. I think some actionable steps that they could take now mm-hmm. is to to support some of the movements and proposals made by the American Descendants of Slaves Foundation that has actually been fairly successful in advocating for a change to census forms mm-hmm. and a change to federal government uh, HR employment forms to include a designation for Black American descendants of slaves, mm-hmm. or a, a Black American who is descended from enslaved persons. Mm-hmm. That's something that doesn't cost a dime in regards to reparations, cash payments, but a critical component of this all is data. Because all Black people in America are lumped in from a data standpoint on various government forms, mm-hmm. we don't even have an understanding from a data standpoint of what is happening to the specific black Americans who descended from enslaved people. So true. And so for terms of census data, in terms of unemployment data, we need to begin to track that in specificity. And that is what we're pressing for because the danger in my eyes, Ron, is that black Americans can end up getting erased. And when I say erased, I mean, so let's say that you own a tech company, right? And you were catching heat for not, hire many black employees right Mm -hmm. what you could do is if you kind of just kind of twisted it strategically you could just say all right well our goal is increasing the amount of people of color at the company right yeah you just lump us everybody in black latino asian everybody right right. people of color that's a large now you can just hire people of color that don't have to be black americans Mm -hmm. and then now you've improved your goal and but because we're all together as if we're one and all come from the same background and have experienced the same things. Mm-hmm. You see how over time Black Americans can end up just being erased yeah. in many ways from opportunities, employment, and it almost not even feel like that's what's happening. So I, I think that what we have to do is just we're not divisive or against anyone. I'm not, you know, I'm not against. I love all people. Mm. But I think just in terms of repair, we have to isolate it to, you know, black Americans who have been enslaved. Mm-hmm. And I, I throw a quick stat at you. So um, a researcher recently did a study in regards to the r- racial makeup of black students at highly selective schools. Mm. And they found that black students at Ivy League schools disaggregated that data and drilled it down further. Mm. The black students at 
Ivy League schools, the same schools that we hear about regarding the affirmative action ruling and all the things that are going on. Yeah. 44% of those students were black students whose parents had, they were uh, children of black immigrants. Mm-hmm. Though they make up about 17% at the time of the study of the black population. So what has happened in that case and in others is when in regards to affirmative action, which the original intent was to repair the wrongs done specifically to black Americans who had been enslaved. Yeah. On the educational side of that, what in some cases at some schools this is morphed into is black Americans who descended from enslaved persons no longer even benefiting from the program yeah. that was specifically, you know, and so I think that also leads into what is happening. Why are we being erased? And so I think we have to just discuss a focus on black Americans who were from enslaved people in regards to repair is my whole argument. Valid point. We're back with Alan Holmes, host of the Hidden Lynchings podcast. When the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, wherever you podcast. Archived audio, blogs, social media links, and more, all in one place. Log on at ronshowatl.com. The Ron Show on America One Radio. My guest today is Alan Holmes, host of the Hidden Lynchings podcast, available on Apple Podcasts. He's also senior advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis and a staunch reparations advocate. Alan, I want to get back to a point you were making about differentiating, maybe by census data, between African descendants of slaves or the enslaved and black Americans, because there is a difference, especially when it comes to deciding what to do about reparations. That's a powerful Every point. black person in America has experienced discrimination. They've experienced bad things, and we should not discount that. Right. But just in referring to the specifics wrong wrongs done to black Americans who descended from enslaved people. Mm-hmm. We must focus on repair being very specific. Um, but also from a legal standpoint, if reparations was given to given to all black people regardless of lineage, that also opens the entire claim up to being struck down because this is a legal claim. And so people against reparations could rightly claim that a reparations program that was allocated to all black people regardless of lineage is helping using federal government money to help people that the government actually didn't harm because mm. you have to prove the harm yeah you have to prove so that's the whole point of the yeah. commission yeah you have to prove the actual harm because you were asking for a specific dollar amount mm-hmm. so you must prove the federal government policy that was implemented led to this gap so i, I want to talk about what reparations would even look like? Because I think you have a, what what seems like a pretty firm idea in your mind, what reparations would look like. And again, this is something that a a potential commission would probably want to dive into and discuss. And everybody come away, maybe 65, 75% happy with the outcome, but not one person is going to be 100% happy with it. You and I have talked and you seem to advocate for full on write a check or write a a series of checks versus, yes, versus tuition, college tuition, trade school tuition, tuition, this, that, and the other, tax credits. Expl- explain your stance. Well, and then let me let me clarify. I actually am not opposed to some of the proposals that you uh, that you posted when we were on Twitter having the exchange, yeah. because those are all worthwhile, and we must address issues regarding education, housing, mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. The, the cash payment is just one component. That's not it. Okay. It's just one component. Now, my idea is this could be attacked on multiple fronts. The example of how many uh, Jewish um, people were compensated after um, World War II Mm -hmm. 
is that many many um, Jewish people receive a hundred dollar a month checks from the German government. Right now, I don't know if all Jewish people just receive a hundred, well, and they may that may just be how it's spelled out. And you know what? Initially attacking that number, mm-hmm. maybe not the t- entire eleven to fourteen trillion number, but a a reasonable start. Mm. Hundred dollar a month checks. Once eligibility was determined, that could be a potential way. Another is a federal trust fund to establish for grants that could be allocated to address some of the issues that you discussed regarding right. home ownership, right. startup capital. Now, when you say education in terms of skilled trades, one thing I want to be clear about is that through my you know, interest in plumbing and learning what the state of Georgia offered workforce development-wise in mm-hmm. terms of skilled trade certifications, many states, including Georgia, offer tuition-free certifications if you want to get a cert in skilled trade. So it's already free. Nice. So I think one thing that might be a good aspect of a reparations fund is to simply do better marketing in different states to African, to Black Americans about programs that are already available. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the, like a lot of states have free certifications in skilled trades. It's just nobody's tapping into it. Well, I also so think, I think that that's by design, too. I think we, we've seen this with uh, the, the the recent so-called Medicaid expansion here at the state of Georgia. There wasn't a whole lot of marketing done on it. Signups were really slow. And I think that was the design, honestly, to, to, to almost hide it, to then point out, well, look, nobody said they needed it, so we're just going to shelve it. Yeah, that's. I, I think that is, and it's been really interesting, Ron, since we're on that topic for a second. Uh, we've done a lot in, you know, District Nine to get try to get residents into skilled trade jobs and construction. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things, which is just seems to be slightly odd, is it's been very hard to get the local schools, public schools, to allow companies that are in construction to just come talk to the kids, mm-hmm. just tell them about the prospects yeah and it's it's very it's very strange i mean like you said it may be by designs it's like very strange to me because of you're in real estate you understand Mm -hmm. um the opportunity now that i've been doing apprentice plumbing for three years i understand the significant amount of money people in construction on that side are making yeah and it is insane that we're that we haven't and the state offers free certs Mm -hmm. So it's it's really like mine. I mean, it could be by design, but it's just actually crazy because everything is lined up for more people to get into construction in Georgia and other states and yeah. make money. Yeah. But it's not, you know, it's not happening. So I think the educational component would be important. I would say another idea regarding a plan would be a super fund, which could pair government funding with contributions from organizations and companies. Yeah. They benefited from slavery. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask that where, where, where this money is going to come from because the, the taxpayer, the American taxpayer, the non, the non African descendant of slave taxpayer yeah. is going to make their make their noise about having to pay for it. Why should they have to pay for it? So who who would pay for it in your mind? Well, ideally, in my opinion, in my opinion, the federal government is the most culpable. You know, just if, if, if this is a legal claim and we're actually trying, you and I are having a discussion, this is a legal claim okay. about who is most culpable yeah. in the gap that exists right. is the federal government. And so, but that does not mean uh, companies that benefited significantly from slavery oh. as well as convict leasing. Yeah. 
Um, well, and, and let's throw not, let's let's could not, not contribute, and let's throw in lending bias and and all sorts of wrongs and and egregious, uh, you know, theft by corporate taking uh, that that have occurred, you know, throughout American history as well. I mean, there there are a lot of, and and this is not difficult to trace. It's it's something that a, a commission would really have to dig their heels in on and roll their sleeves up for, but it's not that difficult to trace. Yeah, and I would say, Ron, another is, you know, Matt Iglesias actually has a good, a good interesting idea about a potential way to fund the program is to get it directly from the Federal Reserve. So an example mm. was brought up in terms of that, that it is a fact that the Federal Reserve transferred $11 trillion in funds overnight to investment banks during the Great Recession mm. to rescue them mm. and... 45 to 55 billion monthly in quantitative easing. So the argument could be made that at the least, even if you make the argument that a reparations program is 11 to $14 trillion, at the least, the Federal Reserve is capable of allocating at least one to one and a half trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Cash. See, I think this is sort of a, 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 a thing. I think this is sort of a, a, an issue where, and this is where I, I give Democrats a hard time. They 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 have a difficult time framing an argument in a way that makes sense and turning it back on conservatives. Uh, conservatives, by and large, claim to be fiscal conservative. Social conservatism yeah. is obviously a, a part of it as well. But it, within African American, within the African American community, within the Latin uh, the Latin American community, there is a a more conservative mindset anyway. So it comes back to the fiscal conservatism. We have been trying to uh, combat, as you, as you pointed out, the racial wealth gap and inequality and opportunity uh, inequalities. Uh, And instead of tackling them head on and, uh, you know, uh, putting, putting our, our, our research and our, our hearts and our minds and and money into this to solve this, we have been putting band-aids on, on the left, while the right's been pulling the band-aids off and claiming the band-aids aren't necessary, when clearly there's a gaping wound and there's blood coming out. To me, it's more fiscally conservative to deal with a problem in earnest than to keep trying to put band-aids on it, and the tab of the band-aids keeps adding up, and we're blowing money, wasting money on these band-aids in the first place. We, we are, Ron. I'm glad you brought that up. And one of the, I guess you could say, I like that argument because one of the, I would say, the biggest impact that all of us are paying the price for uh, is crime. And I, I'm not here yeah. to talk about how crime is out of control or I'm not crime monitoring like some of these accounts do on Twitter. But what I'm saying is we understand that in Atlanta, as in Detroit, as in um, Macon, Georgia, all over the country, Akron, Ohio, where yeah. I'm from, mm-hmm. crime is getting to be a problem. In but, terms of the the youth, right? Right. Well, and and, youth, and a it's, lot of men, a lot of women. People are more crimes are being committed by individuals at a younger age. And the issue is, my argument, Ron, is that it, this all ties back. Hey, I'm not saying it directly ties back to the wealth gap per se, but you have to really sit back and think about how we got here. But it's you easy. I mean? It's it's such an easy thing to say, honestly. Crime exists where opportunity doesn't. Do you see how easy that is to say? Yes. That's I it. Like that. I mean, it, That's it. We're not, I, yeah, and we're not, and I think people are, the thing about it is I see, you know, and I, and it's just, you know, I'm biased toward the issue, but 
I see reparations as healing this country. Mm. Really heal because the thing is, there's a thinking when you discuss this issue that oh, black people they're just going to only benefit. Mm. Do you understand? I don't think the average person who isn't black maybe understands if this happens. Do you know how many non-black people are going to financially benefit from? Oh, absolutely! From yes, money. But because black people, I'm telling you, just the ripple effect. Field, yep, we help black people spend money with everybody. There, I mean, like there's some demographics that are a little bit hold off and where they spend their money. They kind of spend their money with them. We spend money with everybody. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and and the issue is, lots of businesses will benefit from this infusion of capital in, in, into the economy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not talking about people just, I'm wasting money. I'm talking about people actually scaling their businesses. Yep. And Starting a business, buying be- a home, et cetera, and so on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just, and I'm thankful to have the city council job because I see what's happening on the ground floor. And because, you know, at one point, you know, just to be honest, District 9 was, well, up to last year, was number one in the entire city in regards to curfew violations. Mm. So I'm dealing with the issue and we're trying to work hard with the youth and work address these issues, but there's a connection between poverty and what's happening, yep. what has happened. Yep. You know what I mean? Like, let's just understand. But we got to look at, think of this generationally mm-hmm. because from a poverty standpoint, a lot of people who've been born and raised in Atlanta, it's a lot of generational poverty. So yep. The, the the kid is 14 that's staying out to 3 a.m. off of, you know, Elizabeth Place and Grove Park or another part of the uh, uh, district. Mom is working hard. She's at work. She might be working overnight. It's, she's working two jobs because it's like tough. Nobody's at the house, but nobody's making a connection to generationally what has happened. But also, I would argue and, that that 14-year-old sees mom working that second or third job just to stay afloat and thinks, why do I want to do that? Let, you know, this, this this situation, this system doesn't work for me. So why do I want to do that and become disenfranchised just with the American dream or the, the, the belief of an American dream in and of itself? Yeah. It's, and I think it's, it's a connection. And I know that it's, I think most people, I think if we continue making this argument, some people just don't want to believe that there's a connection, mm. right? They want it to stop. Some people are like, we just want the crime to stop, right? But then they never sit back out of curiosity and really dig into the numbers and try to understand why, what is it about someone who is 14 who just killed another person? Mm-hmm. What is, where is, where do they live and what is that like? Yeah. You know, nobody, I mean, and I mean, until we confront it, yes, this is hard. It's difficult. It's, it's a, very hard, right? It's a lack of but perspective. But until, until we can continue kicking the ball down the road, right? Because we don't have to do anything. Like I said, I might be dead before reparations ever happens. It may never happen. Or my niece, my nephew who's 14, he might be 50, you know, mm. and when it happens. I, it, but the deal is, the longer it takes for us to kind of get to this repair, yeah. The more, the more difficult it is going to be to solve our deep seated problems. And Alan, I, so, I see that I see that being a problem with the way conservatives tackle 
a lot of issues. I, you know, all this this preening and, and propping themselves up at the southern border instead of dealing with the destabilization of Latin American countries for the last 150 plus years or whatever. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to throw, again, Band-Aids, walls and, and penalties for coming here instead of dealing with why folks are leaving their native countries to come to a safer place in the first place. It's just... I just see this oh, yeah, so absolutely. much, man. I see this play out so much. We don't seem to want to solve problems. We want to take aspirin to cure cancer, and it doesn't cure cancer. You know what I mean? It doesn't. I, I'm hopeful with it. And, I mean, I think that's one of the things that needs to happen as well from a candidate recruitment standpoint is that, you know, some of the old guard, many of the old guard congressmen, some congressmen and some of the senators are eventually just going to have, we're going to have to get fresh blood in there. Yeah, and yeah. It's just not, I mean, because the thing is, it's, it's, to me, I'd say Congress is a very unserious place now. And I mean, <laughs> yeah. that is, that is, but I think, I You're think, right. you know, you have members of Congress that are more outlandish than others and just don't seem to take the job seriously. But then you have the few that are and some of the are that, you know, represent here in Georgia that I think do a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. People get frustrated and they want to quit. Like some of the members of Congress that are resigning are actually good members, right? But Mm -hmm. you get frustrated because if you mean business, you don't want to be surrounded with people that are not taking it seriously. So you see what's happening. It's members of Congress leaving because they want to go to K Street in the lobby. And then others that they have the fire to actually get some things done. But they, they don't want to be surrounded by the dysfunction. But I think that actually dovetails right back to the reason we are having this conversation. In an election year, 2024, voter turnout is huge. So let's pick up that conversation after the break. We're with Alan Holmes, host of the Hidden Lynchings podcast, senior advisor for Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis and reparations advocate. When the Ron Show returns on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show, we are with Hidden Lynchings podcast host Alan Holmes, also senior advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis, and a staunch reparations advocate. Fantastic conversation we're having today on the subject of reparations. Before we took a break, we were talking about how unserious Congress is and how it doesn't function for the American people and how frustrating voters uh, can get about that, in particular black voters who are frustrated with the lack of movements on ending the racial wealth gap. I think that dovetails back to the original intent of this conversation. We have to have voter turnout. And I've said this for the last couple of days on this show. We got to have people turn out and not just this November, but two Novembers from now. The American Revolution was an eight and a half year struggle. It was a fight, right? We have to have uh, an eight and a half, nine year political voting revolution. That is this and two more presidential cycles in the midterms between them to see any opportunity for all of these things to be addressed from a tangible, cogent, and intelligent you know, way of, of dealing with it. And that's why, for me, it's so concerning that, listen, I'm not excited about Joe Biden. I'm not. Uh, you know, I think he's I think he's actually all in all, I'll give him a B minus. I'll give his presidency a B minus. Obviously, there are things to address and fix, but I'm still going to show up and vote for the guy because the alternative is insane. And I, living in the state of Georgia, know that even my one vote, if I'm not excited about Joe Biden... I'm way excited about not voting for the alternative, and that's what I have to show up for. And so that's that's why I wanted to reach out to you because I wanna I wanna foster this conversation to continue having this dialogue 
But to remind people, there are consequences for not voting. 2016 reminded us of that. 78,000 voters in three different states could have changed the outcome. We'd have a different Supreme Court. We'd have different momentum. We'd have Roe v. Wade still. Uh, you know, we, we might be closer to reparations, uh, for example, if 2016 hadn't turned out the way it did. I mean, you know, you. I think you have a point, Ryan. I think what, what I'll say is that to get the turnout, you know, and this is my opinion, I could be wrong, to get the turnout where we need it, President Biden's going to have to be willing to take some risks in regards to what he offers mm-hmm. in order to ensure the turnout. Because, again, if I'm wrong, but Joe Biden's um, strategy of saying this is the, the country will end and democracy's over, Donald Trump gets elected, that could work. It did work last time. Yeah. But my the, the the danger now is this election will come down to whether enough voters actually still believe that. Yeah. Some still believe that. Many still believe that. Others are wary, and others are uh, kind of indifferent. So you may need to do something else <laughs> to get them out. Now, yeah. again, it's always a risk to say, "Well, I'm not doing that. I'm running with the the country will end." But my contention is. They're just saying that is not going to be enough. And I wouldn't I wouldn't risk it. I would not risk it personally. So, again, that's why I said risks. You take a risk, it could backfire politically, strategically. But I think that at the end of the day, I just, I, it's going to be hard for Joe Biden to make the math work with a significant rollback in black voters. I, I don't think he can replace black voters with white voters. Right. White voters have never been that from a number standpoint voted with democrats at a large clip yeah reliable right Mm -hmm. so i think it's just always make the math work if you lose support from one group you can get it from another you can fix it i just think it that's going to be difficult yeah i i I believe i believe the, the potential for more black voters to vote for Biden to make up for anybody who would somehow be that pissed to leave his side if he offers more policy wise to black voters I think you should take the risk. I think, I think you should take the risk. Um, but I, I, I think by and large, it, it's it, it has more benefits and risks for him to do so. Yeah. I think. I mean, I think it has to be done by May. This shift needs to happen in May mm. of strategy. I mean, in my, in my opinion, yeah. it needs to happen now. But we can't. You can't wait two, three months out, four months out. So there are smarter minds than you or I that are probably weighing those sort of decisions. I tend to just, and, and I think this just comes from a, a difference of perspective. You and I come from different backgrounds. Uh, I, I tend to think that maybe this needs to be the cart pushing the horse a little bit. Uh, I'm saying that activists uh, who think uh, the way you do on this should say, listen, Joe, we're going to vote for you. We're going to vote for your ticket, but we're going to be loud and annoying if you don't answer to this in the second term. There will be hell to pay. This is a promise we are making, a check we are writing. We will be there if this is not addressed and force the issue onto the uh, onto the dialogue, onto the platform. I mean, that, that, I mean, that's, I think some people have that approach, and I think I'm not necessarily disagreeing that that couldn't work, yeah. I, but I'm of the opinion that Ados, uh, you know, advocacy founder Yvette Carnell has said repeatedly, and this I've kind of taken to this is that politics is an exchange, not a gift. Yes. And this is an exchange. Yes. He needs votes. We need a thing. Yeah. We need policy. So yeah. there could be, I, I mean, I don't 
see that there's there's nothing stopping President Biden from saying, if you do this, then the first 60 to 90 days, I'll issue an executive order creating a commission at least, or mm-hmm. something that's agreed upon yeah. in exchange. I would feel more comfortable with that because, Ron, I've been in politics long enough to know that when there, when an elected official is in power, it's a little bit more difficult to get them to do what you need them to do. That's Not true. To that you're won't. right. No, you're but right. It's just like it's. You, you, I mean, right when they get in, then it's they're there for four years. The yep. senators there for longer, and it's much more difficult. I just from a from, if this is a business transaction, yeah. all I'm saying is if voting is a business transaction, I feel more comfortable getting assurances before I decide about who I'm going to vote for. Understood. Alan Holmes, host of the Hidden Lynchings podcast, senior advisor to Atlanta City Councilman Dustin Hillis and staunch reparations advocate. Thanks for joining the Ron Show. All right. Thanks again, Ron. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Have a great one.